0: Would you pray with me once more before we come to this passage? Father, how grateful we are again for the opportunity to gather together as we've already sung and prayed and interacted with you. We pray now that you would speak to us through this, your word that is living and active, that is as real now as when it was penned by Moses thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul makes clear to us that the things that were written down here were written down for our instruction, for an example to us on whom the end of the ages have come. So use this word for our instruction this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is week eight, I believe, eight or nine in our sermon series through the book of Exodus, and we land in chapter five this morning. And uh, I wonder if you would think that based on where we land this morning, that this would be a good news kind of chapter. I mean, think about all that has transpired in this story so far. You've had genocide, you've had infanticide, you've had oppression, and then you've had God hear the cries of his people and raise up a deliverer named Moses. And yes, while Moses was a little bit rough shot getting out of the gate and had many objections as to why God had drafted the wrong person for the job... Nevertheless, we saw last week that he did obey and he did go to Pharaoh. And here we meet the confrontation. Here we see the moment that this period of redemption has been waiting for. The confrontation, the initial first match between God through Moses and Pharaoh. And it goes terribly. What do you do when following God makes things worse? Do you have a category for that? in your theology. Surely you do. We spent 14 weeks last fall walking through the life of Joseph, and we saw over and over again that sometimes following God makes things worse. And this morning, I'm glad to have that background because we're going to come to another example of that here in the life of the people of Israel as Moses goes to confront Pharaoh. Let me give you some other examples, some more modern examples, of ways in which Obeying God can sometimes lead to suffering even more hardship. Maybe you're a young Christian in high school or middle school who's seeking to follow Jesus. Is it easy? Probably not. Have some of your peers tempted you to follow in sinful lifestyles? Perhaps. Have you been labeled weird? Weird. Or, in maybe today's cultural climate, somewhat of a social threat because you hold to such primitive views as the inspiration of the Bible or the exclusivity of Christ. When you follow God's Word, do others mock you? That can be a tough place to be. Or maybe you're a single man or woman who has desired to be married, but you have certain standards that are based on Scripture. Have others ever tried to get you to lower those standards and go out with a guy or girl who's wealthy or attractive even though they're not committed to following Christ? Obeying Jesus in your singleness can be difficult. Or have you ever been an employee that has known about someone breaking a company policy or even a law and did you report it? And when you did the right thing, did people thank you? Or did you make things worse? They might have even labeled you as a troublemaker. I know, and perhaps you know, of adoptive couples, those who have fostered, entered into the foster care system, or adopted children and have experienced waves of trouble after their good deed. Some are now dealing with behavioral issues, attachment issues, academic issues, and many other challenges. I know of a few couples that have experienced great financial trouble post-adoption because the father lost his job. These couples pursued God's will. They did what was right. They cared about true religion, and they seemed to get slapped in the face for it. Recently, I read a story of a young kid playing baseball who had an accident. Those present thought that he broke his arm, but they later discovered that he actually had a tumor. What's interesting to know is that before this tragic discovery happened, several of his family members had recently come to Christ. They had had something of a mini revival in their own family, and nevertheless, the joy in this family quickly turned to grief. I know of many pastors who followed God's call to pastor a particular church, but met great opposition. Some pastors preach preached the Bible faithfully and saw little or no response. They might be cried out, why, why did you even send me here, Lord? Or think about some of the struggles our own missionaries have had as we've sent them out and as they've counted the cost to leave behind the states and head for a hard place. And when you get there, trouble starts. Maybe you wonder, why, Lord? Why did we even come here? Well, if you've ever suffered precisely because you were obeying God, this sermon is for you. And when we become Christians, whether we say it or not, we kind of have this subtle underlying assumption that things should be okay. That in our mind, we expect life to go well. I mean, we're following the true and living God. We have surrendered our lives to the Lordship of Christ, we're walking in His ways. And that's compounded by the fact that we live in an age of unprecedented technical advancement where there's an app to fix everything. And so we expect things to go smoothly, work out well, and be predictable but it doesn't always work out that way. We think we're doing the right thing, and then things seem to go from bad to worse. And when those difficult things happen, and they happen quite often, we become more discouraged, and many of us wonder what has gone wrong. Think about where we left off last Sunday morning. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 31, we left on a note of hope. Verse 31 says, The people believed... And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. That's a great, great moment. And this is immediately followed by their affliction intensifying, not getting easier. Have you ever experienced that in your own Christian walk? When you took a step of obedience or faith, you responded to God's clear guidance from his word and the immediate result was terrible? It seems as if your faithfulness was rewarded with a sharp rebuke. Obedience is not always accompanied by immediate success. And we are never to judge the Lord's evaluation of our faithfulness by the immediate circumstances that come on the heels of that faithfulness. Sometimes God in His grace and mercy decides immediately to reward us for faithfulness. And sometimes, in God's grace and mercy, He decides not to reward us immediately for our faithfulness, but instead of visiting upon us with His favor, He visits upon us a test so that we might grow in faith and trust. Obeying God, brothers and sisters, is not a pain-free life. I so wish it was, It does not mean that you will be popular. It does not mean that you will be immune from awful problems in this fallen world. We will not be spared. It does not mean that you will not encounter serious spiritual warfare, that you will be on your face in times of despair. So the question is not, will we ever have moments of discouragement? The question is, how can I deal with deep discouragement when it inevitably comes? When I seek to live out God's Word and things do not... Work out the way I expect. Where do I go for help? Where do I go for strength? Where do I go for sanity? Where do we go when our hopes get dashed? What are we to do when the darkness that's supposed to give way to the dawn first becomes darker? Exodus 5 points the way forward for us. So we're going to look at three aspects. We're going to bounce around the chapter this morning. We're not going to go straight through. I'm just going to summarize it briefly now, and then we're going to kind of mine out some lessons from it about disappointment and how to handle it. So just to summarize what we've just read, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh. Pharaoh does not respond favorably to their request that uh, Israel be released on a three-day's journey to go worship in the wilderness. And as a result of their obedience to God, the people of Israel's life becomes significantly harder as Pharaoh amps up the oppression, bears down on them even harder and makes them now go search for their own straw. Sometimes this story is called the bricks without straw episode, and that's only partly true. they're They're not making bricks without straw. You can't make bricks without straw. Straw is a bonding agent that holds the bricks together, but you can make them go get their own He's not providing it for them any longer, and they're going to have to, on top of their difficult work of brick making, they're now going to have to go search for the adhesive ingredient that's going to hold them together, and it's not easy to get. makes it clear in this chapter that basically stubble is what's available, not real substantial straw, which would be so important in causing these bricks to be strong and not crack and break. And so they're instructed they have to go do it. And as a result, it gets worse and worse and worse. And the people encounter this oppression. The foremen complain. The Israelites complain. And they go right to Moses. And they receive a complaint from Moses, as was Pharaoh's intention all along, was to disrupt this so that the people would not blame him but blame Moses. Moses could say, "See," or Pharaoh could simply say, See, you all were doing fine until this Moses and Aaron came along. And they are the ones who caused your labor to be worse. They are the ones who brought this whole crazy idea to me, and I had to oppress them, oppress you all because of them. So he's trying to drive a wedge of trust between Moses and Aaron and the Israelites. It's a sharp, shrewd move. And they do just that. The people turn against Moses and Aaron, and then Moses turns against God and begins to accuse him. And that's how the chapter ends. Now, next week, a lot more good news as God continues to treat his servant and his people with great grace. But for this week in chapter 5, it's pretty bad. So here's where we're going to go. We're going to look at what creates disappointment, what intensifies disappointment, and what addresses disappointment. So first of all, let's look at what creates disappointment. I've got two things here. Well, really, there are two things under every one of these points. So if you've got your notes there, you'll see them. First of all, what creates disappointment? There's two things in this text that I think intent or create the disappointment that is going on in the hearts of the people here. The first is half-hearted obedience. Half-hearted obedience. Now, I want to show you this in three different people, Moses, the Israelites, and the foreman of the Israelites. And uh, so let me show you these, and then we'll, we'll apply it. Look, first of all, at Moses, chapter 5, verse 1. After Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, afterward Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now I want you to notice something, first of all. There's two things here. First of all, where are the elders? God instructed Moses to take the elders with him when he goes to Pharaoh. And right here, it just mentions that Moses and Aaron go. I want you to see, look at chapter 3, verse 18, where we get that instruction. God says to Moses there, giving him very clear instructions, and they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him. Now, we get no evidence that the elders are here with them. It doesn't mean they're not. They could be outside or whatever, but it's not encouraging that, the elders are not mentioned in chapter 5, verse 1, when God specifically told them that they needed to be there. And also, Moses doesn't exactly share exactly what God told him to share. Moses in chapter 5, verse 1 says, let my people go that we may hold a feast in the wilderness. But chapter 3, verse 18 said, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, you're supposed to say this, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us and now let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now, granted... The festival probably included sacri- I mean sacrifices were a key part of the festival. maybe, we're just, maybe Moses is just given a summary here. but it's really clear he should say what God told him to say, and he gets around to doing that after Pharaoh rebukes him. See that in verse two? But Pharaoh said, "Who is the Lord that I should go and obey His voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let the people go." And now Moses says in verse three. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest we fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. He had the speech memorized. He knew what he was supposed to say, but he didn't say it. He didn't say what he was told to say when he was first told to say it. He said it afterward. He was half-hearted in his obedience. He did not specifically do all that God required him to do. Now let's give him, okay, we can give him some benefit of the doubt here, but I don't want you to miss this. Listen to what Peter N. says, commentator on the book of Exodus says, one must not draw too sharp a distinction between chapter 5 verse 1 and chapter 3 verse 18 as if Moses is utterly ignoring the command of God. Yet, is it not striking that the first words out of the mouth of Moses and Aaron do not adhere strictly to what God commanded Moses to say? So I think that's a good balance. He's saying, listen, let's not draw too stark a distinction and say he's totally in total disobedience here. But nevertheless, isn't it striking to see he didn't do exactly what God told him to do. He didn't take the elders, and he did not speak what God told him to say in verse 1. He did in verse 3, but he should have done it in verse 1. We got some half-hearted obedience going on here. But he's not the only one who has half-hearted obedience. It's also the Israelites. Look at chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Their response to Moses is striking. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge. In other words, and this this is essentially him saying, The Lord judge you for what you have done. Because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now, what were they doing at the end of chapter 4? They were worshiping God. God has heard. God has listened to us. We bow down. Had they been suffering oppression? Yes. At the end of chapter 2, they cried out in worship as a result of their oppression. Chapter 2, verse 23, or During those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant. God saw the people of Israel and God knew In chapter 4, verse 31, we just read, the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that He had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. How can people who were suffering great oppression, who responded with great faith and hope, none of those promises have been answered yet. They've not been delivered. They're walking by faith. They know God has heard. Now they've got a finger in the chest of their deliverer. That's half-hearted obedience. That is not a regenerate heart which is what we're going to see over and over again with the people of Israel as we walk through the book of Exodus. If you worship God one minute and stick your finger in his chest repeatedly the next minute, that's concerning. It's not saying we don't go through periods of doubt and struggle, but this level of accusation is horrible, especially in light of all that God has already done for them in giving them hope. This is momentary belief, friends. Exhibit A. At the first sign of having to drag a cross, their faith withers and dies. When they realize that they got to drag a cross, they ain't they ain't in with that. This is the parable of the soils. Remember that parable? The worries of the world, the cares of this life choke their faith, choked it out. And it's not even there. We also have the example of the foreman. This is the third example. Look at verses 15 and 16. These are the men of Israel who were appointed to oversee the people of Israel and their work. In verses 15 and 16, we read the following of what the foremen say, Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, Make bricks! And behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. Three times he says, We are your servants. Now, that's true at one level. But it also reveals something of a divided loyalty in the hearts of the foremen of the Israelites. It seems they are divided in who they ultimately serve. Are they serving God? That's who they should have turned to in that moment as they were experiencing that level of oppression. But no, they go right into Pharaoh's office and they start complaining. They start complaining about all the sorts of things that have happened to them. Ray Ortland, I've mentioned him several times. He's a pastor in, in Nashville, and uh, his his father was Ray Ortland Sr., who pastored in Pasadena, California, for a long time. Was actually John Piper's pastor while he was in seminary for a period of time. And Ray Ortland, over the years, has written many many tributes to his dad. His dad was a faithful man and a good pastor. And he wrote recently a, a blog post called "The Most Important Thing My Dad Ever Taught Me." And this is what he said. There is only one way to live, my dad said. All out, go for broke, risk-taking enthusiasm for Christ. He used to say, halfway Christianity is the most miserable existence of all. Half-hearted Christians know enough about their sin to feel guilty, but they haven't gone far enough with the Savior to become happy. Wholehearted Christianity is happiness, and there is no other happiness. I think that's what Ray Ortland's father would probably say to Moses, to the Israelites, and to the foreman. Listen, don't be half-hearted. Don't be half-hearted in your obedience. Don't go halfway. Be all in. A second reason that they are disappointed is not just as a result of half-hearted obedience, but also short-sighted forgetfulness. Short-sighted forgetfulness. When the people complain to Moses, what does Moses do? Well, he turns to the Lord, which is a good thing, but the things that come out of his mouth are not good. Look at verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you've not delivered your people at All. Moses has forgotten some things. (laughs) Let's remind each other of what he's forgotten. Look back at chapter 3, verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. God had already given him the news before it happened. Look at chapter 4, verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. God told him twice, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And in his short-sighted forgetfulness, he forgets. Unless we throw stones, we're just like him. We're just like him. Our discouragement in the face of difficulty often comes from forgetting what God has already told us in his word. God has already told them, he told the people of Israel, he told Moses, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Which is why Peter picks up this theme in 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 and 13 and writes to us the following, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. See, that's the way we respond. The fiery trial comes and we say, well, this is a surprise what have I done? This is strange. This should not be happening to me. I'm walking with God. It's not the way the Bible thinks. Don't be surprised that even when you are the beloved of God, as Peter says, even when you are obeying, even when you are dealing with your sin, even when you are repenting, even when you are doing all you can to trust and follow him, you are still visited with fiery trials. Verse 13, but rejoice Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that's what we're doing. We're sharing the sufferings of Christ that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We'll come back to that a little bit later as to God's purposes in our pain. But that's what creates disappointment. Not the only things, but in this text, half hearted obedience and short sighted forgetfulness that can intensify our feelings of disappointment when things aren't going the way we think they should go. Point number two, what intensifies disappointment? What intensifies disappointment? The first thing that intensifies disappointment is external circumstances, things that, over which we have no control. And we need to be very realistic about that. That's in our text this morning. What is creating the disappointment and the challenges has nothing to do with the Israelites, and it has everything to do with an evil pharaoh. We need to recognize the reality and responsibility of human involvement in the cause of suffering. The defiance of men against God contributes to the suffering we experience in this world. Men who defy God make this world a harder place to live in than it should be, even as a fallen world. Human evil brings very real suffering and very real oppression into the people's lives. We see this all throughout the book of Exodus so far. Pharaoh's oppression, Pharaoh's efforts at infanticide, Pharaoh's efforts at genocide and the fact that he is intensifying their labor by no longer providing straw they still must get it himself and they're still expected to produce the same number of bricks as before do you notice that he says that again and again in the chapter in chapter 5 verse 6 and 7 in verse 11 verse 18 i'm not providing straw for you you have to go get it but you're still expected to do the same number of bricks that is unjust that is evil it is wrong and is contributing to the despair and disappointment of the Israelites and even to Moses. So external circumstances are real, and we must not minimize those things. But they're not the only thing. What intensifies disappointment is not only external circumstances, but also internal unbelief, internal unbelief. Now, I want us to go back here for a moment and look at Moses' complaint. Really, accusation. Against the Lord in verses 22 and 23. I won't reread them. We've already read them twice now. But I want to analyze a little bit of what's going on in Moses' heart as he complains to the Lord. He says three things to God, and I want you to notice this. First of all, look at verse 22, and this is also in verse 23. He accuses God of being responsible for evil. Notice this, verse 22, O Lord, why have you done evil? Listen, God never does evil. God sovereignly overrules evil for his purposes, but this is an accusation in God's face that he's evil. Man, Moses is in a bad way here, a really, really bad way. But isn't God kind to be patient as he listens to his servant? The very question of why... Have you done evil? And he says it again in verse 23. He has done evil to this people. That referring to Pharaoh, not God. But he accuses God of doing similar things that Pharaoh does. Did you get that? Verse 22, he says, God, why have you done this evil? Then verse 23, he says, For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people. Listen, God and Pharaoh are not at all on the same level, Moses. What are you doing? You've lost your mind, man. You're acting like God is like Pharaoh, but that's what he's saying. Saying God's like Pharaoh. God makes me live like this. God oppresses me. God violates me. God abuses me. God makes me go get bricks or straw for my own bricks, and then he still says, you're idle, you're idle, you're idle. Do more, do more, do more. Is that our God? No. The very question assumes that God must answer for having done something wrong. God has not done anything wrong, nor does he owe Moses an explanation. In fact, when he's already told him multiple times, it's going to get bad, dude. Hang in there. Secondly, he says, Lord, why you sent me? Now, behind that question is actually a charge against God. He's kind of pulling back up the chapter 4 objections and saying, see, I told you not to send me. Why didn't you listen to me? I told you I was the wrong person. I told you, I told you, I told you, and you didn't listen and you sent me anyway. It's your fault. And then thirdly, in verse 23, Lord, you failed on the promise that you made and you've made things worse than they were. You see that? You have not delivered your people at all. Oh, really? Why are you there? Listen. Moses is wrong to accuse the Lord, and in accusing the Lord wrongly, Moses is revealing what we often do when we don't like God's providence. Moses accuses God here of being unconcerned for his people. Time out. Time out. Who had to convince Moses to go to Egypt to help his people to begin with? Had Moses done so, oh, so willingly, so eagerly, wait a second, Moses is acting as though he's the one who has the heart of compassion and not God. So often when we face trials or worse, when we see those that we love with all our hearts face trials, our first reaction is to think, Lord God, how could you do this? Because for a moment, Satan blinds us to the deviousness and the wickedness of our own hearts and lets us believe that we're more compassionate than God is. And that's precisely what Moses is doing here. Lord, if I were God, I wouldn't do this. I love them more than you do. And yet, only a few days before, Moses had to be coached and coaxed to come to the aid of God's people. Who cared more about the people, God or Moses? God did. There's no comparison. There's no question. God had the heart for his people, and yet Moses thinks he's more loving. Brothers and sisters, beware of thinking you're more loving than God is and that your perspective on love is the right one. It isn't. God's is. So those are the two things that intensify disappointment. It's external circumstances and internal unbelief. But let's come finally and thirdly to what addresses disappointment what addresses it. Two more things here. First of all, securing the right perspective addresses disappointment. Notice I didn't say cure. I don't think disappointment can be cured in this life. I think as redeemed children of God who nevertheless struggle with sin, we are going to be continually and perpetually disappointed by various things. But we can't address it. We can address it with faithfulness and obedience and fight against it. And that's what these two points will help us to do. First, secure the right perspective. Disappointment, brothers and sisters, is ultimately rooted in whose voice you choose to believe. There is a thread in this chapter of competing voices. Who will be believed? Who will be believed? Who will be believed? Who will be believed? Ourselves, our perspective, our feelings, or God's objective revealed word? Remember, God spoke in verse 1, and then Pharaoh responded in verse 2. And then Moses and Aaron responded in verse 3. And then Pharaoh responded again in verse 4. And then Pharaoh made a command in verse 6. And listen, this whole chapter is a battle of who will be listened to. I want you to see see this. Look at verse 1 again. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord. Now look at verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh. That's not an accident. That's not an accident that those two are mentioned in that way. God and Pharaoh. And look who's, so those are the two people speaking. Thus says Pharaoh, thus does Pharaoh, thus says God, thus does God. Who will be listened to? And the Israelites, the foreman, and Moses are all listening to Pharaoh. They're all listening to Pharaoh. He's the one being believed. The foreman believe him, the Israelites believe him, and Moses believes him. There are competing voices throughout this whole chapter because, beloved, there are competing voices throughout your whole life and my whole life too. Whose voice are you privileging? Everyone is hearing and believing voices. We are doing what the voices in our head tell us to do. And sometimes those voices need to be taken captive and made to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Those perspectives are wrong. They are not to be the determiners of reality for us. God's Word and God's Word alone is to be the framer of our reality. God help us. Part of discipleship to Christ means that we cut through the noise to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. I'll give you a couple of examples of some brothers and sisters who did do this. Joseph did it. Joseph did it. He was able to cut through the noise, didn't he? And man, did that brother have in- incentive after incentive after incentive to give up. I mean, God, I resist temptation. I get thrown in jail. I interpret dreams, and they lie about, or they forget about me. What, 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 am I, what do I have to do to get you to pay attention to me? I mean, is there, what kind of level of obedience do you require anyway? So I won't rehearse all that story, but just remember that. Go back to that. Think through that. Also, I don't. I, I just don't think it's. Uh, I, I don't think it was a mistake that we also journeyed through the first six chapters of Daniel a little while ago, and there we see again a very similar story: God doing inexplicably, inexplicable things to people who are obeying Him, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel three sixteen through eighteen. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter if we're thrown into the blazing furnace and the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of the gold you have set up. Man, I love that. He will, but even if he doesn't, I'm not bound down. That's, what, that's the way faith talks. These three friends didn't worship God because of the gifts God gave them. They worshiped God because of the God God was to them. That's it. We don't worship and serve God because of his gifts. We worship and serve God because he's our God. They were convinced that God could rescue them through the fiery furnace but even if he didn't, it wouldn't impact their worship of him one bit. They'd rather be delivered into God's presence through the fire than worship a false god just to escape the fire. They're not going to do it. How do they get there? How do they do that? Because here's what they did. They settled it before it ever happened. They settled it. They said, the supremacy of God in my life is all that matters. Job had it settled. Though he slay me, I'll hope in him. If he kills me, if he takes all I have, I'm going to hope in him. They settled it. They settled it before it ever happened. Elizabeth Elliot settled it. Know her, right? Her and her husband, Jim, who went with several of their friends to reach the Alka Indians and were at least Jim and Many of his brothers, brothers in Christ, were killed on that beach. And so Elizabeth, obviously, she's been speaking for years. She's quite old now, but she's been speaking for years about that, and many, many young missionary candidates come up to her and ask her, how do we know if we can do it? How do we know if we're ready? You want to hear Elizabeth's response to that? Here it is. The first thing I tell them is to settle once and for all the supremacy of Christ in your life. I put myself utterly and forever at his disposal. Which means turning over all the rights to myself, my body, my self image, my notions of how I am to serve my master. I tell these earnest kids that the will of God is always different from what they expect, always bigger, and ultimately infinitely more glorious than their wildest imaginings but there will be deaths to die. Jesus told us so well in advance. We know it. Acts 14, 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's not going to be any other way we're signing up for trouble. John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus told us. Just like God told the Israelites ahead of time, Jesus has told us ahead of time. So Scotty Smith offers this prayer in light of this. Father, forgive us when our worship of you vacillates based on how you respond to our prayers. It's easy to question your love when we are in pain, have fears, or are sick, but we want to worship you before there's a fire or when we're in a fire. If, you're, if we're delivered from a fire or if you take us home through a fire, let us worship you. Because of Jesus, such a longing isn't wishful thinking, but a promised reality. Jesus wasn't just the fourth man King Nebuchadnezzar saw walking around in the fiery furnace. He is our faithful Savior who endured the fiery trial of the cross for us. No matter the temptation, trial, or trauma, Jesus is with us and for us. Listen, brothers and sisters, life, this side of the new heaven and the new earth, won't be pain-free for us, but it will never be Christ-absent. Praise his name. It will never be Christ absent. Hallelujah. Because of Jesus' finished work, we don't have to be afraid to die or live. And then Scotty concludes, may your beauty, grace, and peace keep us centered in every season of life, including this season. Also, don't forget that in the midst of suffering, God is marvelously sustaining his people here. And he's going to ultimately deliver them. And is that not our case? Even when we go through trials like we're going through these days with the loss of Pastor Ted, nevertheless, God is marvelously sustaining us. He'll carry us day by day and we will ultimately be delivered. We're going to get out of this place. Or at least if you get out of this place and Christ doesn't come back first, at least this place is going to be significantly cleaned up, glorified, and made into our eternal home. There is a purpose to our pain. We need to put our personal stories in the context of the larger story. That's what the Israelites were forgetting. That's what Moses was forgetting, was to pull up out of the immediate circumstance and put that story of what they were experiencing in that temporal way into the eternal story of God. What's the eternal story? 2 Corinthians four seventeen and 18 is the eternal story. Listen to this. For this light momentary affliction is preparing preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's the eternal story. It's a light and momentary affliction in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that's being prepared for us through it. Every pain is going to be it's going to be turned into an everlasting pleasure. The pain that we experience now is preparing for us. Literally, it's, it's going out in front of us into heaven to prepare a greater weight of glory for us to enjoy. All that he takes, Jesus will repay. God promises that none of our suffering is in vain, but is actually working for our everlasting joy in his presence. Before I come to the last point, just share a specific story of that. So Katie and I were, the last three or four days, we've been in Lexington for a getaway pastor's retreat thing. And uh, Paul Strahan was there. It's one of the speakers, KBC thing, Kentucky Baptist Convention. And Paul's there. He's pastor, First Baptist, Owensboro. You know who he talked about? Joy. As an opening illustration, he talked about Joy Malone. He didn't know Katie was there. didn't know I was there. But he shared, he shared about, this very thing about how life throws curveballs and things we don't anticipate in ministry and in life and how we're supposed to respond to them. And he quoted my mother-in-law's final Facebook post, which was, Whatever the future holds, let me say Jesus Christ is worth it. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. And Paul Strahan quoted this at a conference, speaking to a room of 200, 300 pastors Encouraging them by the example of my faithful mother in law to not quit in the ministry. Brothers, your sisters, our pain's not wasted. It's not wasted, it's was used two years after the fact to encourage a bunch of discouraged pastors to not quit. Praise God that He uses our testimonies long after we've gone to be with Him. That's one of the things that when mom said, whatever the future holds, let me say Jesus Christ is worth it, that was one of the things that was in the future. She didn't know that, but several years down the road, God was going to use her life and her testimony to encourage his people. No suffering is ever, ever wasted, ever wasted. And then finally and quickly, number two, serving the right master. It's not just securing the right perspective, but it's serving the right master, You know, we see throughout this chapter the difference between living under Pharaoh and living under God, don't we? And I just want to point you to two verses. Look at chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. That's the difference between living under Pharaoh and living under God. Pharaoh says, as a master, work more, work harder. False gods are always that way. They're unforgiving taskmasters. Sin will take you farther than you're willing to go, cost you more than you're willing to pay, and keep you longer than you're willing to stay. It's a terrible taskmaster. Even if you're working, you're not working enough. They're idle. You're idle. You're idle. You don't do enough. You don't do enough. You don't do enough. You're a loser. You're a loser. That's what it's like to serve under Pharaoh. And you know, behind him is a serpent named Satan who's driving that. Do more, do more, do more, do more. Add to your burden, add to your burden, add to your burden. How's that different from our God? Our God gives us rest from our burdens. Our God takes burdens off of us. God makes his people rest. When men give us more burdens, God takes our burdens away. When men are never satisfied, God is and can be in Jesus Christ with us as his people. Pharaoh makes us work, God makes us rest. God is our God, and he is the one who gives our souls rest. Does that mean that life will be trouble-free? No. But that means when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, nothing will separate you from my love. He get, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for my, your souls, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's our God, that's our Savior, that's our Jesus. Corey Ten Boom, famous missionary, and I conclude with this, that it's a fitting summary for, our, from our, for this sermon. If you look, look, look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. If you look at Christ, you'll be at rest. Let's make sure our eyes are always on him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we direct our eyes to you in this moment. Thank you that you give us rest. We thank you that you're a God who says, cast your burdens on me and I will sustain you. I will never permit the righteous to be moved. Cast your cares on me, Peter calls us to do. Cast your cares on the Lord. Cast all of our burdens. You are the God who carries our burdens. And as a result, we can now enter into each other's burdens and help uh, help each other in the midst of those. So, Father, thank you for being a God who gives us rest. Thank you for a God who never yells at us and screams at us and says, do more, work harder. But we serve a God who said it is finished in Jesus Christ. We thank you because done is so much greater than do, and that we serve you and we do for you out of the done that you have provided for us, out of the salvation that has been freely given to us in the grace of Jesus Christ. So when when, when our hearts, when the world, when the devil tells us do more, work harder, you're idle, help us to remember that you're the God who gives us rest from our burdens. And so... In this moment, we rise to thank you and worship you for this great salvation that you have given us, which frees us from the greatest burden that we've ever known, our own sin and the judgment it deserves. For anyone who, like Christian in the story of the Pilgrim's Progress, is here with a burden on their back and they can't shake it, may they come to the cross this morning and may they feel that, that burden roll off and into the empty tomb. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.